Section 17 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 17. George Peabody, Part 1. The great deeds for human betterment must be done by individuals. They can never be done by the many. George Peabody George Peabody was a noted American merchant and banker. He was born in the village of Danvers, Massachusetts, in 1795. He died in London in 1869. In childhood, poverty was his portion, but he succeeded for he had the persistent corpuscle, and he had charm of manner, two things which will make any man a winner in the game of life. He gave away during his lifetime eight million dollars. When he died he had four million dollars left, which was distributed, by his will, largely for the betterment of society. The fact that Peabody left so much money was accidental. He intended to give this money away, under his own personal supervision, but death came suddenly. Has the world made head the last forty years? Listen, Therese, it has made more progress during the past forty years than in the two thousand years preceding. The entire fortune of George Peabody, including what he gave away during his life and what he left, was twelve million dollars. This is just the income of Andrew Carnegie for six months. We scarcely realize how much civilization smells of paint until we remember that George Peabody was the world's first philanthropist. No doubt there are many people before him, with philanthropic impulses, but they were poor. It's easy to sympathize with humanity when you have nothing to give but advice. The miracle comes in when great wealth and great love of mankind are combined in one individual. In the Occident, giving to the poor is lending to the devil. The plan has always been more or less of a pastime to the rich, but the giving has usually been limited to sixpences, with absolute harm to the poor. All anyone should ask is opportunity. Sailors just ashore, with three months' pay, are the most charitable men on earth. We might also say they are the most loving, and the least lovable. The beggars wax glad when Jack lumbers their way with a gay-painted galley in tow. But alas, tomorrow Jack belongs to the poor. Charity in the past has been prompted by weakness and whim, the penance of rogues and often we give to get rid of the troublesome applicant. Beggary and virtue were imagined to have something akin. Rags and honesty were sort of synonymous, and we spoke of honest hearts that beat neath ragged jackets. That was poetry, but was it art? Or was it just a little harmless exercise of the lacrimal glands? Riches and roguery were spoken of in one breath, unless the gentleman was present, and then we curtsied, cringed, or crawled, and laughed loudly at all his jokes. These things doubtless dated back to a time when the only mode of accumulating wealth was through oppression. Pirates were rich, honest men were poor. To be poor proved that you were not a robber. The heroes in war took cities, and all they could carry away was theirs. The monasteries were passing rich in the Middle Ages, because their values opened only one way. They received much, and paid out nothing. To save the souls of men, was a just equivalent for accepting their services for the little time they were on earth. The monasteries owned the land, 
and the rentals paid by the fiefs and villains went into the church treasuries. Sir Walter Scott had an abbot say this, I took the vow of poverty, and find myself with an income of twenty thousand pounds a year. But wealth did not burden the monks forever. Wealth changes hands. That is one of its peculiarities. War came, red of tooth and claw, and the soldiery, which heretofore had been used only to protect the religious orders, now flushed with victory, turned against them. Charges were trumped up against churchmen high in authority, and without doubt the charges were often true, because a robe and a rope girdle, or the reversal of haberdashery, do not change the nature of a man. Down under the robe you'll sometimes find a man frail of soul, grasping, sensual, selfish. The monasteries were looked upon as contraband of war. To the victors belong the spoils, was the motto of a certain man who was president of the United States, so persistent was the war idea of acquiring wealth. The property of the religious orders was confiscated, and as a reward for heroic services, great soldiers were given great tracts of land. The big estates of Europe all have their origin in this well-established custom of dividing the spoils. The plan of taking the property of each or all who were guilty of sedition, treason, or contumacy was well established by precedents that traced back to Cain. When George Washington appropriated the estate of Roger Morris, forty centuries of precedent looked down upon him. Also, it might be added, that if a man owned a particularly valuable estate, and a soldier desired this estate, it was easy for this soldier to massage his conscience by listening to and believing the report that the owner had spoken ill of the king and given succor to the enemy. Then the soldier felt it his duty to punish the recreant one by taking his property. And so the age of the barons followed the age of the monasteries, and now the barons had given way to the age of the merchant. The monks multiplied the poor by a monopoly on education. Superstition, poverty, and incompetence formed the portion of the many. This world is but a desert drear, was the actual fact, as long as priests and soldiers were supreme. The reign of the barons was mainly a transfer of power, with no revision of ideals. The choice between a mitre and a helmet is nil, and when the owner converses through his headgear, his logic is alike vulnerable and valueless. So, enter the merchant, whose business it is to carry things from where they are plentiful to where they are scarce. And comes he so quietly, and with so little ostentation, that men do not realize the change. And George Peabody, an American, gives three million dollars to the poor of London. This money was not tossed out to purchase peace and to encourage idleness, and to be spent in strong drink and frills and finery, and the ways that lead to nowhere, but to provide better homes for men, women, and children. Lay hold on eternal life, said Paul, writing to Timothy. The proper translation we now believe should be, lay hold on the age to come. Philanthropy now seeks to lay hold on the age to come. We are building for the future. The embryo has eyes, ears, and organs of speech, but the embryo does not see, nor hear, nor speak. It is laying hold on the age to come. It is preparing to live. It is getting ready for the future. The past is dead. The present is dying. And only that which is to come is alive. The life of George Peabody was not in what he gave, but in what he taught the millionaires that are to be. He laid hold on the age to come. George Peabody is another example of a boy who succeeded in spite of his parents. The rigors of climate and the unkindness of a scanty soil may be good things. They are good like competition, 
very excellent, provided you do not get more than your constitution requires. New England has her white trash, as well as the South. The Peabody's of Danvers were good folks who never seemed to get on. They had come down from the mountains of New Hampshire, headed for Boston, but got stuck near Salem. If there was anything going on, like mumps, measles, potato bugs, blight, janders, or the cows in the corn, they got it. Their roof leaked, the cistern busted, the chimney fell in, and although they had nothing worth stealing, the house was once burglarized while the family was at church. The moral to little George was plain. Don't go to church, and you'll not get burgled. Life was such a grievous thing that the parents were got out to laugh, and so George's joke brought him a cuff on the ear in the interests of pure religion and undefiled. A couple of generations back, there was a strain of right valiant heroic Peabody blood. Among the Green Mountain boys, there was a Peabody, and another Peabody was captain of a packet that sailed out of Boston for London. To run away and join this uncle as cabin boy was George's first ambition. People in the country may be poor, but in America such never suffer for food. If hunger threatens, the children can skirmish among the neighbors. The village of Danvers was separated by only a mile or so of swale and swamp from Salem, a place that once rivaled Boston commercially, and in matters of black cats, an elderly woman who aviated on broomsticks by night set the world apace. Fish, clams, water lilies, berries, eels, and other such flora and fauna were plentiful, and became objects of merchandising for the Peabody boys, bare of foot and filled with high emprise. Parents often bestow upon their progeny the qualities which they themselves do not possess, so wonderful is this law of heredity. George was the youngest boy in the brood, and was looked after by his other mother, that is to say, by an elder sister. When this sister married, the boy was eleven years old. To the lad, this marriage was more like a funeral. He could read and write and count to a hundred, having gone to school for several months each winter since he was seven. He could write better than his father or mother. He wrote like copperplate, turning his head on one side and chewing his tongue, keeping pace with his lips as the pen glided gracefully over the paper. His ambition was to make a bird with a card in its bill, and on this card, written so small no one could read it, the proud name, G. Peabody. This ability to write brought him local fame, and Sylvester Proctor, who kept a general store in the village, offered to take him on a four years apprenticeship and teach him the trade of green grocer and dealer in W.I. goods. The papers were duly made out and signed, the boy being consulted afterwards. What the consideration was, was not stated, but rumor has it that the elder Peabody was paid $25 in W.I. goods, and also wet goods. Proctor was a typical New England merchant of the Class B type. He was up at daylight, shaved his upper lip, and swept off the sidewalk in front of his store. At night he put up the shutters with his own hands. He remembered every article he had on his shelves and what it cost. He bought nothing he could not pay for. There was one clerk besides the boy. After George came... The merchant and his clerk made all the memoranda on brown paper, and the items were duly copied into the ledger by George Peabody. I have been told that a man who writes pure Spencerian can never do anything else. That, however, is a hasty generalization, put forth by a party who wrote a Horace Greeley hand. A country store is the place for a boy to learn merchandising. In such a place he is never swallowed up by a department. He learns everything from shaking down the ashes in the big stove, to buying and selling fadeless calico. He becomes an expert with a nail-puller, knows strictly fresh eggs from eggs, and learns how to adapt himself to the whims 
caprices, and notions of the customers who know little and assume much. George Peabody slept in the attic over the store. He took his meals with the Proctor family, and used to wipe the dishes for Mrs. Proctor. He could wait on store, tend baby, wash a blue wagon, drive a horse and team, and say, Back she! in a way that would throw you off the front seat when the horse stopped if you didn't look out. That is to say, he was a New England village boy, alive and alert to every phase of village life, strong, rapid, willing, helpful. The villager who knows too much gets fresh and falls a victim of arrested development. The boy in a village who works, and then gets out into a wider sphere at that critical period when the wanderlust strikes him, is in the line of evolution. George Peabody remained at Proctor's store until nine o'clock in the evening of the day that marked the close of his four years of apprenticeship. He was fifteen, and all tempting offers from Mr. Proctor to pay him wages thereafter in real money were turned aside. He had a new suit of clothes, five dollars in his pocket and ambition in his heart. He was going to be a draper and eliminate all W.I. goods. Over in Newburyport, George had a brother, David Peabody, who ran a draper's shop. That is to say, David Peabody was a dry goods merchant. This was a comparatively new thing in America, for a store, at that time, usually kept everything that people wanted. The exclusive draper idea came from London. It seemed to work in Boston, and so Newburyport tried it. David and George had talked it over together, and a partnership was in mind. In the meantime, George was only fifteen years old, and David thirty. I am twice as old as you, once said David to George, with intent to make the lad know his proper place. Yes, I know but you will not be twice as old as I am very long, replied George, who was up in mathematics. The brothers did not mix very well. They were tuned to a different vibration. One had speed, the other was built for the plow. And when the store caught fire and burned, and almost all of Newburyport was burned up too, it was time for George to strike for pastures new. He walked down to Boston, and spent all his money for a passage on a coaster that was about to sail for Washington in the District of Columbia. This was in the latter part of the year, 1811. Washington was the capital of the country, and there was an idea then that it was also going to be a commercial metropolis, hence the desire to get in on the ground floor. Especially was the South to look to Washington for her supplies. George Peabody, age 16, looked the ground over, and thought he saw opportunity nodding in his direction. He sat down and wrote to a wholesale dry goods dealer by the name of Todd in Newburyport, ordering draperies to the amount of $2,000. Blessed is that man who knows what he wants and asks for it. Todd remembered the boy who had given him orders in Proctor's, and at once filled the order. In three months, Todd got his money and an order for double the amount. In those days, the plan of calling on the well-to-do planters and showing them the wares of Autoclus was in vogue. English dress goods were a lure to the ladies. George Peabody made a pack as big as he could carry, tramped, smiled, and sold the stuff. When he had emptied his pack, he came back to his room where his stock was stored and loaded up again. If there were remnants, he sold them out to some crossroad store. The fact that the Jews know a few things in a worldly way, I trust, will not be denied. George Peabody, the Yankee, adopted the methods of the chosen people. And at that early date, it comes to us as a bit of a miracle that George Peabody said, you can't afford to sell anybody anything which he does not need, nor can you afford to sell it at a price beyond what it is worth. Also this. When I sell a woman draperies, I try to leave the transaction so I can go back next week and sell her more. 
also this. Credit is a sympathetic nerve of commerce. There are men who do not keep faith with those from whom they buy, and such last only a little while. Others do not keep faith with those to whom they sell, and such do not last long. To build on the rock one must keep his credit absolutely unsullied, and he must make a friend of each and all to whom he sells. The Judaic mental processes have been sharpened by migration. To carry a pack and pedal is better than to work for a Ph.D., save for the social usufruct and the eclat of the unthinking. We learn by indirection, and not when we say, Go to! Now watch us take a college course and enlarge our phrenological organs. Our knobs come from knocks, and not from the gentle massage of hired tutors. Selling subscription books, maps, sewing machines, or Mason and Hamlin organs has given thousands of strong men their initial impulse toward success. When you go from house to house to sell things, you catch the household in their old clothes and the dog loose. To get your foot in the front door and thus avoid the slam, sweetening acerbity by asking the impatient housewife this question, Is your mother at home? And then making a sale is an achievement. The greatest study of mankind is man, said Pope, and for once he was right, though he might have said woman. From fifteen to nineteen is the formative period, when the cosmic cement sets, if ever. During those years, George Peabody had emerged from a clerkship into a businessman. What is a businessman? A businessman is one who gets the business and completes the transaction. Bookkeepers, correspondents, system men, janitors, scrubwomen, stenographers, electricians, elevator boys, cash girls, are all good people and necessary and worthy of sincere respect, but they are not businessmen, because they are on the side of expense and not income. When H. H. Rogers coupled the coal mines of West Virginia with Tidewater, he proved himself a businessman. When James J. Hill created an empire in the Northwest, he proved his right to the title. The businessman is a salesman, and no matter how great your invention, how sweet your song, how sublime your picture, how perfect your card system, until you are able to convince the world that it needs the thing, and you get the money for it, you are not a businessman. The businessman is one who supplies something great and good to the world, and collects from the world for the goods. Taffy, Guff, and Oxaline are all well and good in their way, but they have the great disadvantage of not being legal tender. In migrating from New England to the District of Columbia, George Peabody had moved into a comparatively foreign country, and in the process had sloughed most of his provincialism. It is beautiful to be a New Englander, but to be nothing else is terrible. George had proved for himself the most valuable lesson in self-reliance, that he could make his way alone. He had kept his credit and strengthened it. He had served as a volunteer soldier in the War of 1812 and done patrol duty on the banks of the Potomac, and when the war was over, no one was quite so glad as he. Serving in the volunteer ranks with him was one Alicia Riggs, several years his senior, and also a draper. They had met before, but as competitors and on a cold business basis. Now they were comrades in arms and friends. Riggs is today chiefly remembered to fame because he built what in its day was the most palatial hotel in Washington, just as John Jacob Astor was scarcely known outside of his bailiwick until he built that grand hostelry, the Astor House. Riggs had carried a pack among the Virginia plantations, but now he had established a wholesale dry goods house in Georgetown and sold only to storekeepers. He had felt the competitive force of Peabody's pack and would make friends with it. He proposed a partnership. Peabody explained that his years were but nineteen, and therefore he was not legally of age. 
Riggs argued that time would remedy that defect. Riggs was rich. He had $5,000, while Peabody had $1,650.40. I give the figures exact, as the inventory showed. But Peabody had one thing which will make any man or woman rich. It is something so sweetly beneficent that well can we call it the gift of the gods. The asset to which I refer is charm of manner. Its first requisite is glowing physical health. Its second ingredient is absolute honesty. Its third is goodwill. Nothing taints the breath like a lie. The old parental plan of washing out the bad boy's mouth with soft soap had a scientific basis. Liars must possess good memories. They are fettered and jived by what they have said and done. The honest man is free. His acts require neither explanation nor apology. He is in possession of all his armament. End of section 17. Recording by Todd.